You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. Welcome, 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 friend. I'm TK, your tour guide to the past, and you are listening to For the Love of History, the podcast where we talk about world history, women's history, and weird history. Welcome to episode 101. And if I were more clever, I would have made today's episode all about Dalmatians, or Dalmatian-related at least, but instead, we're talking about the battle between Australian farmers and the world's second largest flightless bird. That's right. Today we are diving into the ludicrous story of the Great Emu War. Emu War? Emu War? I'm probably going to say it both ways today, so I apologize in advance. (laughs) And I also apologize for my voice today. I am a tad bit congested. I have a summertime cold right now, which is not fun. So I apologize if I sound a little bit like Phoebe from Friends when she catches a cold and she sings about smelly cats. Um, That is a very, is it a very niche uh, reference? No, no, I I feel like. I feel like you're going to get that. I feel like you're going to get that. Anyways, before we dive into our topic, if you haven't already, I would greatly appreciate it if you made a sacrifice on the altar of the internet gods and leave a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform. It really, really helps. And if you would like, you can head on over to Patreon for early episode access merch discounts, and other goodies. It really helps me be able to continue making this podcast better and better. So that's all I'm going to say about that. And without further ado, let's hop into our time machine and travel to Australia post-World War I. You're going to want to grab some sunscreen and a Steve Irwin-style Akubra hat. And let's get to it. The year is 1918. The First World War is over and the men who survived the trenches are headed back to their homes. But you didn't think that we would start this episode of the Emu Wars with another war, World War I. Neither did I. But here we are, right after World War I. There were innumerable men returning home from the trenches. And Australia was no different. Thousands of soldiers were sent back without a single idea of what they were going to do. Life as they knew it before the war had completely changed. So the Australian government decided it was going to do something. It created a brilliant, air quotes brilliant, plan to send these men to what they called the Wheat Belt. Yay for a plan! The Wheat Belt sounds great, doesn't it? Lots of wheat? Everybody loves wheat, except for celiac people. They don't, they don't love wheat. But hopefully none of these farmers were celiac. Anyways, yay for a plan. The wheat belt was going to be awesome. Except 
for the fact that it was not awesome. It was not awesome at all. Apparently, a complete hellhole is what it was, because you see this area that is the size of Britain, although called the Wheat Belt now, used to be filled with native plants and animals and all that other good nature stuff. But then the government decided to strip the land to make room for farming and raising livestock. So it was not a naturally wheaty area. The wheat had to be planted. And who did the planting? These soldier farmers. Did these soldier farmers have any experience with farming? Most of them? Absolutely not. The government created a whole program, however, to help these soldiers coming back from the war. They loaned them the money to buy a big old plot of land to farm on and then sell the crops in order to make money to eventually pay off that government loan. Love that journey for them. Farm it up. But here was the problem. My delicious little donut area was almost like a desert. There was a tiny bit of rain throughout the year, little if any government support. There was no infrastructure. They were just told, get out there, build a house, build all the other things you need, take your family with you. It's going to be fine. You're going to figure it out. And also there was an ungodly amount of rabbits. And you know what rabbits like to do? They like to eat vegetables and baby wheat crops, apparently. So they were facing no money, no water, and a shit ton of rabbits. So when all of these rabbits started eating these poor little baby wheat plants that were barely hanging on because there was barely any water to go around, the soldier farmers asked the government hey, could like we get a little bit of help out here? And the government was like, yes, sure, great. We're going to build you a giant fence around the whole area to keep out these bunnies. It was a comically long fence to keep out these rabbits. And do you think it did the trick? Kind of. It kind of worked a little bit for a hot minute. But as fences do, they broke. And where they broke, rabbits came in. And the fence was so long, it was hard to find these holes and repair them all at once. The maintenance on this fence was just absolutely ridiculous and rabbits would get in all the time. So for years, the soldiers battled not only the elements, but lack of promised financial support from the government, and hordes and hordes of bunnies. But we are not here to talk about the bunnies, are we, dear one? Nay, nay. We are here to talk about the flightless plague that befell these already struggling farmers in 1932. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.
I invite you, dear one, to picture this in your mind. If you feel so called to do so, close your eyes, but not if you're driving, okay? You're a soldier. You're a soldier farmer. You're in your wheat field. It's hot as shit. And you're super pissed and sweaty because your government subsidy money that you were promised hasn't come for ages. Your little crippity crop crop is shriveling all around you because there isn't enough water. You're out of money and you're just having a real bad time. And then you hear it. The thunder of 40,000 taloned feet running towards your crop and gobbling up what little wheat you have. This was the hellish reality that befell the soldier farmers in November of 1932. A very important piece of information that the government either conveniently left out or didn't even know themselves was that the wheat belt was smack dab in the middle of an emu migration path. Um, I know more about emus now than I ever have before in my life, like the fact that emus are one of the only birds to have calf muscles. Weird. Also, unlike other birds, emus don't have strict migration patterns. They're free spirits, free birds. <laughs> If you will. (laughs) Uh, 80s music joke. Anyways, very serious emu talk time right now. These free flightless menaces basically migrated wherever they could find food and water. And what better place to get a quick bite than a lovely wheat field with some water right next door. These long neck freeloaders descended upon the maturing wheat, destroying what little patience and crops the farmers had. This was absolutely too far. Beyond the pale. They had no money, no support, terrible crops, those damn rabbits, and now the world's second largest bird was just invading it. 20,000 of them were just invading? They could not deal. They could not abide. So a group of them banded together and decided it was high time to go to the government and say, listen up, guys. We need some help. And that is exactly what they did. This group of soldier farmers gathered together and they went and asked the Minister of Defense, Sir George Pierce, if they could pretty please have some machine guns to launch an attack on the emu. That's right. You heard me. You heard me correctly. They went straight to machine guns. Just two machine guns. That's all. That's all they wanted. And of course, he said yes. Sir George was like, you got it, guys. No problem. He was proper hyped. Old Georgie boy was incredibly hyped. So hyped, in fact, that he didn't tell the the military board before actually sending the machine guns. And He also thought that this was an opportunity. People had started noticing how the government had basically abandoned these poor farmers and wanted to prove them wrong. So not only did he give them two machine guns, but he also sent a full camera crew to film the entire thing. Oh yes, good old Georgie Porgy wanted to film the glorious battle between the heroic soldier farmers and these pestiferous emu. Major G.P.W. Meredith was put in charge of the troops 
and the campaign commenced on the morning of November 2nd, 1932. Almost as soon as they had arrived back at the wheat belt with the machine guns, they spotted a mob of emu, which is the scientific name for a group of emu. I swear to you, I swear on the big, big book of history that it is a mob of emu. I promise you, I will, if you're watching the video version, I'll put a thing right here to show you that I am not lying. I'm not joking. It is a mob of emu. (laughs) Ah, the truth is stranger than fiction. Anyways, they got there with their machine guns. They unloaded them because they spotted a mob of 40 to 50 of these pestiferous creatures and decided now was as good a time as any to launch their attack. The camera crew set up their filming stuff. The soldiers set up their machine guns. However, the pesky little mother pluckers were out of range, which is fine. No problem. Major Meredith was on the case. He was a trained soldier. He knew what to do. He had his men flank them around the sides to try and bring them closer to the machine guns. But do you think that worked? Absolutely not. No, it didn't work. It didn't work at all. And do you know why it didn't work? Because emus are hella fast. They are so fast. They can run at like 45 miles per hour sustained. That's like 72 kilometers per hour, okay? That is, that's very, very fast. So these men on foot thought that they were going to be clever and like surround the emu. In what world, sir? In what world are you sneaking up on some emu? I don't even know what to say. I don't even know what to say to you right now. (laughs) So good luck herding these giant beasties closer to loud machine guns to allow themselves to be killed. No emus were killed in the first skirmish. And it went on like this for absolute days. Major Meredith and his soldiers thought they were going to be going head-to-head with an army of awkward, flightless, gray beasties, like all Lord of the Rings style. But that that never happened. Emus don't travel in giant hordes all the time, or mobs, (laughs) which is the technical word for a group of emu. (laughs) They only traveled in little mobs, and they were hella fast. And even when they were hit with bullets, they were basically unfazed. There was some, I don't quite understand how the insides of emus work, but there's something about their insides that make it possible for them to like sustain a lot of damage, but not a lot of vital organs are damaged. I don't understand emus. (laughs) They're, they're weird. They shouldn't exist. And yet here we are. They do. In one of Major Meredith's reports, he said that he saw an emu get shot with a machine gun and still run half a freaking mile while mortally wounded. Emus are tanks. Emus are basically feathered, flightless tanks. Not that tanks can fly anyways, but you understand what I'm saying. They're absolute units. In another report back to the Defense Department, because apparently Major Meredith loved a report, he wrote, if we had a military division with the bullet-carrying capacity of these birds, it would face any army in the world. They could face machine guns with the invulnerability of tanks. 
the emu were clearly winning this war. And by November 8th, they had only killed about 200 emu, which sounds like a lot. However, they used about 25,000 rounds of ammunition to do it. All right, I'm back. I'm back with the answers. All right. So they killed 200 emu with 2,500 rounds. So that's 12 rounds, about 12.5 rounds per emu. That's how many rounds from a machine gun it took to kill a single freaking emu. Oh my gosh. And, and it doesn't stop there, friend. Okay. So not only were these emu basically indestructible, they were fast as hell and they were also learning. They were learning how far these machine guns could shoot their little bullets, all right? So they would refuse to come any closer. They purposely stayed out of range of these machine guns. It was clear to the farmer soldiers that it was basically impossible to win this war. So by the end of the day, on November 8th, the soldier farmers retreated and regrouped for a second campaign. Major Meredith and his band of merry machine gun men, as they were being called now in the media, were utterly defeated, both by the emu and public opinion. Turns out, people weren't too hyped on the idea of grown-ass men using machine guns to kill giant flightless birds. Also, the military was like, WTF Meredith? 2,500 rounds is like a lot of bullets. Get it together. You only killed 200 emu. But despite all of this, the merry machine gun men would not be defeated. They would not stand for this. Just five days after their retreat, they went back out there to make their final stand. This second campaign went slightly better than the first one, but the emu ranks were now organized, which is something I did not know emus could do. <laughs> Apparently, word had spread through the emu about the machine gun men, and they would not be caught dead slipping. Emu naturally travel in small hordes, right? And they also naturally have scouts. They have lookouts to see if predators are coming. So when they saw a dude rolling up, they would alert the others and they would GTF out of there super duper fast at speeds above to 45 miles per hour. The thing that made the second campaign slightly more successful was not the skill of the soldiers, but the fact that there was a horrendous drought and the emu were desperate for water. So the soldiers posted up by said water and they waited and it basically became like shooting fish in a bucket. By December 2nd, the major reported that they were killing about 100 birds, <laughs> 100 birds every week. Eventually the war ended between man and pestiferous flightless beast, but feelings on the situation were mixed to put it lightly. In a 1953 news report, a journalist wrote that the 
birds trampled 100 plants for every one plant that they had previously consumed, making their feet rather than their stomachs the real danger to the wheat crops. So when these farmers were chasing these emu all over the place, they were actually causing more damage than the emu were causing in the first freaking place. People were also not very happy about the fact that they were killing emu anyways. Emu used to be protected birds up until 1922 when they were classified then as vermin. So it was, you know, open season on emu. But not everybody was very happy about that. So not only did the emu war fail miserably to eliminate the emu and wasted a shit ton of money and bullets, it caused more problems to the farmers, it caused divisions, and people were very, very upset. Basically, the emu war was an unequivocated failure. It was straight up just a giant facepalm in the big, big book of history. When one politician was asked if the soldiers would get a medal because of this, he laughed in the reporter's face and said, if any medals are to be given, they should most definitely be given to the emu. In Major Meredith's final report, he wrote that a few hundred emu had been killed, over 10,000 rounds had been used, but there was no casualties or injuries, minus the guy that like almost died from falling off the truck that they mounted a machine gun to. <laughs> yes, they did that. That was a thing. Eventually, the emus left the wheat belt and the farmers were able to get their wheat crops up. And the wheat belt now is a very prosperous place in Australia. And that, my delicious little donut, is the story of the great emu war well dear one we have come to our final thought and it's a recommendation prepare yourself okay so in 2020 a group of comedians slash filmmakers got together and created a comedy docudrama about the great emu war and when i tell you i peed my pants laughing. I'm I'm not lying. This docudrama history shenanigan is hilarious. It follows these two farmers and has a big twist in it where someone leaks information to the emus. I don't want to spoil it for you, but I need you to watch it. I've never given you homework before. At least I don't think I have, but this is your homework, okay? Need You need to watch it. I linked it in the show notes. It's 30 minutes long. It's so funny. It's so good. I promise you won't regret it. And with that, episode 101 is in the books. Thank you so much for joining me today, friend. This season has been full of a lot of animal shenanigans and ridiculous humans, and I'm, I'm kind of here for it. We only have a few seasons left in the episode. It's It's gone by so fast, and I've got some announcements before we sign off today. I have a new line of merch for my birthday that I have created. It's a lovely flower pattern um, using my favorite flower. There's a small little flower on the front. It's a sunflower. And then there's a really beautiful pattern on the back. I'll put um, pictures up on Instagram so you can see it. Mine's in the mail right now. It's it's coming. It's coming. Uh, the trials and tribulations of living in Japan. <laughs> 
And I've also created what I'm calling an episode line. They're t-shirts with pictures um, of some of our favorite historical people like Sappho, Tomoe Gozen, Hatshepsut. There's also Joan of Arc. There's uh, a bunch of different ones. So you can go ahead and click the link in any of my social media bios or in the show notes below to see all of those wonderful merch designs. And if that's not your thing, it's totally okay. I appreciate your support in any way that you give it. And with that, I will tell you, do something that make yourself happy. Be kind to yourself this week. Drink your water, you beautiful creature. And if no one has told you today, I'm very proud of you. You're doing a great job. All right. You're doing an absolutely great job. Love you. Okay, so I will see you next week for a fantastic author interview. It's going to be so fun. Okay, love you. See you then. Bye. (laughs) Why is there a metronome right now? Okay. love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring well look no further and join me katie charlwood your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books as i delve into unsolved historical mysteries murders by gaslight and of course women who have been misrepresented through all time on who did what now the history podcast that's not your history class listen wherever you get your podcasts